Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, for this episode, we'll focus on social NLP. Uh, we'll discuss an overview of the field, and uh, we'll talk about some of the interesting research work in this area. We have with us Dee Yang, who's done a lot of exciting work in this field. Dee is an assistant professor at the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. Welcome to the podcast, Dee. Thank you so much, and I'm uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, so when we say social NLP, what exactly do we mean by it? Can you give us uh, an overview of what exactly the research focus here is and uh, what kinds of questions we are interested in when we say social NLP? Sure, yeah. So basically, social NLP looks at not only the content of language, but also the social dimensions of language. So like intuitively, like uh, who said it, who said the language, to whom, and then for what purpose, and in what context. So the, the field of social NLP is growing a lot these days. So many research work on social NLP, use social media data, or leverage social science or psychology theories to model people's social behaviors. So that's pretty much the space. So one interesting assumption that the social NLP tried to emphasize is that uh, uh, natural language processing is not only about uh, the information or the message content itself. So this assumption in itself is, is useful because it makes it possible for us to model language using some statistical models. But it ignores the other important half of language. So since language is, is used by people, so there are demographics that we need to understand and also by our interactions, that is the, the social component. So, yeah, I think uh, language happens in interactions, communications between human and human and also between human and machines. So uh, we really need to kind of introduce this social factor into the process of NLP. And I think uh, this will transform NLP into the next level. So basically enable some very noble, interesting insights and application, and also hopefully inspire some equitable software. So in terms of the questions or specific research in this space, I really like the framework proposed by Microholiday Systemic Functional Linguistics. So that framework provides a very interesting social perspective to kind of look at the relationship between language and the function of language in social settings. So many problems that I personally interested in about social NLP can be categorized under this framework. So the, the first big category is what we call interpersonal semantics. So basically, it looks at how language reveal interpersonal relation or social relations, how language enable us to cooperate, form bond, negotiate, persuade or ask for things. So this will involve some empirical research like uh, pragmatics. And it's more about the social meaning of language and the emotion, opinion, arguments, platonics, discourse, etc. So that's the first category. The, the second category actually moves to a higher level. It look at uh, the context of the, the social process in which we use our language. And we call it uh, ideational semantics. So Basically, we pay more attention to how we use language in the real world and understand how language use reveal our social role, influence, power, like dynamics, even like the group structure in like a social environments. Great. Yeah, thanks. That's a great uh, overview. You mentioned that uh, there's a lot of recent work in social NLP. Uh, is it because we have a lot more data to process uh, or are there other reasons? No? Yes, I think uh, uh, the internet and then the web provides a unique moment and a position for us to study the dynamics between uh, social dimensions and other, also the content dimensions of, of NLP. So like we all know that uh, the interaction between human and human, human emotions are growing like exponentially these days. Um, so the introduction of like social web, all sorts of things. And as you may see, like from my, uh, just like the overview part, like there are this kind of interwined relation between language, social, linguistics. So 
it's a very exciting interdisciplinary field. So we have more work these days. Another perspective that I think is that uh, people start to think about how to make our technology better, right? So uh, we have seen great success from NLP on many standard tasks with very good performance and even like industry applications such as the personal assistant or machine translations. But then we also pay attention to something that we largely ignored in the past. So the, the limitations of not incorporating social aspects kind of limit the functionality or growth of those applications. For example, there are research showing that uh, there are biases in toxicity detection models towards specific populations. When we use our machine translation systems, they may generate a culturally impolite or not respectful outputs. So, or if you look at some of the new tasks we define these days, such as the uh, common sense reasoning in social contexts, we all see like a relatively limited performance compared to like very standardized uh, like purpose or task. So basically, I think uh, since we are trying to build the systems that can communicate naturally and uh, interactively with human, we, we kind of need to study the social dimension of language technology. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why we, we see more work these days. Yeah, would, it, would it be fair to paraphrase what you just said as NLP is starting to actually work in practice in some scenarios? And so we have to think carefully about what it means that people are actually using these systems? Yeah, I think that's a great paraphrase. So like, uh, because we, we have achieved a very good performance, standardized the corporal benchmark data set. So uh, when we try to like deploy NLP systems into practice, there are so much human side or social side that we need to be aware of. So I think that this is a great opportunity, especially for our research in the academic world. Great. Thanks. Right. So that's, uh, I think, I mean, you've, you've covered a lot of interesting details about this field. Let's talk about some specific examples. What kinds of uh, social linguistic aspects uh, do people study when they look at the uh, I mean, in, in this field, right? I mean, I've, I've heard of problems like uh, studying framing or argumentation, uh, things like that. Can you give more examples there? Oh, sure. Yeah. So again, I, I think uh, this social NLP is an uh, interdisciplinary field, as I just uh, uh, mentioned. So there are many interwind like, relations between uh, language, social, linguistics. So I think uh, intuitively we can kind of categorize it into uh, several levels. So from a uh, individual, if we just look at a person perspective, I think uh, people in this field study language and identity, such as like uh, whether a text is written by a specific identity or population, inferring demographic attributes from language. So politeness, humor, persuasion, and even language accommodation kind of happen at this individual relation perspective. So you will also see some work from uh, Christian at uh, Cornell. They did a great line of research on studying platonics in language. And then like Yulia and David, they have a really nice work of inferring people's attributes from their social media posts. So those are all about the individual level modeling of social NLP. So from a relatively higher level, like a group, group or community perspective, so we start to look at like a social role of revealed in our language and then the dialect features or some like community specific language signatures. So for example, there is a very interesting work from Brendan O'Connor from UMass studying the sports community and then the language used in that specific community. So that's at a group level. From a broader, like a society perspective, I think uh, there in the space of social NLP, people study like a uh, language change, like social influence, and even like a language and a social movements. So for instance, so Jacob Eisenstein's work on language variation and the change provides a very nice view of the, like the societal level of social NLP. Great, thanks. Let's say I want to start working on in this field and I don't know much about this field, what kinds of data sets do I, are available to me and how do I get started? 
Uh, yeah, so this is a very interesting question. So very NLP type of uh, question, because when we think about like a classic NLP, so we study like a benchmark opera, like a standardized task. So when it comes to social NLP, we, we actually do not have many such benchmark data sets. I mean, the task or social phenomena that the people are interested in might be very subtle, like very new, very different, right? There are some kind of recent effort of creating like data sets for a social context, such as a social IQA. So in terms of the data set, so Twitter and Reddit have been widely used by the community to study social NLP. So because you have a lot of data there, and then for users, you may have some of the interesting like demographics that you can use. Other corpus include like Yelp and, and the Wikipedia. So I really like Wikipedia, and I think it shows the beautiful and the positive side of human online participation compared to other negative biases or attacks that we see on the web. So Wiki is a very rich context, not only in English, but also in other 200 language versions. And it's not only about the like, millions of articles we see on the surface, but also millions of editors who volunteer to edit the articles together. And then they will also make decisions about whether to keep an article or not, or whether an editor should be promoted to, let's say, administrator role, or like whether the decision process is fair or something. So basically, I think it has a really nice ecosystem to study many social aspects. Another like paradigm of data in social NLP is to kind of have connections or collaborations with organizations and the companies. So for example, like uh, in one of the persuasion work we did, we actually collaborated with a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform called Kiva.org. And then we, when we study like a social support in language, we, we collaborated with American Cancer Society to get uh, some public data about people's like uh, health communications. So other researchers, they start to like uh, partner with, let's see, crisis text line to understand the online therapy conversations. So in those cases, I think uh, the data is usually like a large scale and then contains rich information with ground data labels. So if I'm someone just getting started in this area, especially if I think, oh, hey, this, this data set might be interesting to build. No one's done this yet. This seems fraught with potential ethical issues. And I wonder if you have any quick guidelines or pointers or something people that are starting in this area should think about in terms of like the ethics of social NLP. Yes, I think that's an excellent question. So in terms of the, the ethic part of the data set, so I think we have, and I think the community have paid attention to this issue. So for example, like uh, there are certain type of guidelines that we should take into account when thinking about this problem. So for example, when you ask annotators to work on labeling like hate speech or biased content, so is this an ethical process? Um, do we need to guarantee that people in this process are not negatively affected by your NLP task, right? So that's from the uh, data acquisition process. And then in terms of users, like we are using users' data, how to deal with the, like the, personal identifiable information in the text, and then people's like Twitter handles, all sorts of things. And another very interesting case I've been thinking about is that, so sometimes we just quote somebody's posts, Twitter posts or whatever in our paper publicly. So those information are all public, publicly available. Basically, if you search that specific message in the internet, you will get to know the user's information. So a, a good practice that we have been taking these days is to paraphrase each specific example that we used in our paper to uh, protect the original user's identity. So although the data is already like kind of like normalized, but like still I think a lot of the considerations should be put into the ethical part. So this is like some generic thing. So when it comes to a specific uh, problem or task, Especially, let's say people are trying to identify depression from text, right? So in this case, there are all sorts of issues that we need to think about. So protecting users' identity, whether we are making like 
fair and responsible predictions from task uh, from the text. Those are all things that we need to take care of. I think uh, there is a very interesting trend, especially in the last two years in the NLP community, is I start to see more and more people uh, putting like an ethical consideration paragraph in their paper to talk about what specific consideration they have taken, what are some like steps they, they take to do this. And another thing widely used in, let's say, HCI, uh, but uh, start to get attention is the IRB review process. So especially for uh, universities, I think uh, you can go through this IRB process to have an expert committee to help you look at your proposed research and then discuss both the positive and the negative implications that matter rise from your research. So those are all, I think, uh, key issues. Thanks. Going back to the data sources that you were talking about, uh, one of the sources you mentioned was Wikipedia, and you said that it's available in, you pointed out that it's available in multiple languages. Is, this, is that generally true about the other kinds of data sources as well? And have people looked at uh, social NLP-related problems in languages beyond English? Yes, again, I excellent the question. So my answer is that uh, social NLP is starting to be more international. So Again, these days, we see many recent papers studying like a multilingual social phenomena. So for example, my colleague at Georgia Tech are studying like online mental health communities. So they look at the linguistic markers of depression that people expressed in their language. And then they have very interesting cultural related insights. So for example, when, we, when they look at how people self-disclose their mental health concerns in language, they found that People from the majority world countries, such as India and South Africa, people are less likely to express negative emotions in their language compared to those from Western countries, such as United States or UK. And then also a recent study also looking at the mental health and the language found that Chinese individuals are generally less likely to express distress or mental health issues and often attribute such distress to some external events or some like a physical causes because of the stigma towards this. So I can imagine many interesting findings may exist. So when it comes to persuasion, when it comes to politeness or, or even like a humor. So those are all like a cultural, culturally heavily related uh, phenomena. So I think in this case, for social NLP, the unique challenge is not only about the multilingual NLP methods or models, but also about interpreting those like culturally grounded results and findings. So I agree. And also, I think that social NLP needs to look beyond the English and also pay more attention to different populations and groups. This is this is maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves or something that you're not as familiar with. But when, when I hear you say that, like make conclusions about like people from China having particular ways of expressing themselves, if you make those conclusions using NLP systems, I think, wait a minute, are we are we certain that our NLP systems actually like, like is this something that's due is the difference that we see due to the an actual real cultural difference or due to the NLP tools that we're using to try to find that difference? Like, how do you deal with these issues? Yeah, that's 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 why social NLP is challenging, right? So there are so many confounding factors when it comes to how we interpret a result that we get. So all factors are possible in this space. It's possible that uh, maybe you are using less accurate NLP to our software there. So that's why you see some kind of difference when we compare English text versus Chinese or other language versions here. And also, it's possible that the culture may play a role there. So I think that's why social NLP is, is like really difficult and challenging to work on. It also uh, suggests another dimension here is that we need more collaborations. We, we need more accurate tools so that we do not need to worry about, oh, this is because the software is not accurate. So that's one part that I think uh, this field is, is truly interdisciplinary and we need like, help and advances in each component of this research process. And also these days, I think like the causal inference starts to play its role here because we have a lot of issues like what you just point out. 
um, we need to better understand what triggers or what lead to this specific finding. So again, like a, a new field with many open-ended and challenging questions. So when you talk about uh, different kinds of research problems that people have looked at related to social NLP recently, it seems like a typical research pipeline here is that you start out with some some question related to social sciences and you seek to answer it by collecting data that would give you some insights into uh, that specific um, uh, social attribute or uh, social patterns and you try to do apply NLP techniques to it, right? Uh, so can you... Tell me a bit more about that. Where do these questions usually come from? Who, yeah, who asks these questions? <laughs> yeah, great. So I think it's it's like a, again like a kind of multiple dimensions in your in your question. So who asks these questions? Well, researcher asks those questions because those questions are needed to be resolved, and the users need answers for this type of questions, and we need a. Uh, to fully understand this when we build NLP applications that can be used for real-world benefits. So a lot of the cases that uh, I think you are correct, like we begin with a specific phenomena. So it's a very important thing in our field, such as we look at the persuasion, or we look at the buyers, we look at the negotiation, uh, or we look at the social role. So in this case, because it's an interdisciplinary field and many people, many scholars in other fields have already like, taken a look at this research. So we try to build upon their work and also introduce the computational power that we can have from the NLP field. So basically, so far, most of the work is building upon like, some of the social science or psychology insights and then leveraging the the powerful NLP algorithms to enable us to have some large-scale understandings of the phenomena. So I think uh, this process actually can be a very interesting loop. So if you think about like a social versus NLP, so I think a social could uh, introduce very interesting problems, very grounded theories for NLP. And sometimes it could inspire the design or development of new algorithms. And then on the other direction, so I think NLP can provide like a mirrors, very rigorous methods, and enable us to do this large-scale interpretation. Sometimes it may validate or even like disprove some of the like true findings in the social side. So it's kind of a very interesting loop. Cool. So let's talk about some of your recent work and go into some of the details. And uh, I'd like to understand uh, specific details of two of your recent works. Firstly, I wanted to talk about uh, your paper, your AAA paper from this year on automatically neutralizing subjective bias in text. Yeah, can you tell us what kinds of subjective bias you looked at and can you give us some examples there? I'm sure. So, so this work is about uh, uh, neutralizing subjective bias, and it's a close collaboration with Stanford University and also Kyoto University in Japan, uh, led by Reed Present, a PhD student at Stanford. So we, we mainly look at uh, framing bias. So here, framing bias refers to using subjective language, sometimes with presupposition, and then talking about uh, opinions as facts or using very judgmental language. So to give some examples here, one example we have in our paper is a programmer always starts his career in a big tech company. So in this case, it's a general statement and it assumes that programmers should be male. However, a neutral or fair statement should be programmers always start their careers in big tech companies. So in this case, because of the introduction of presupposition of the demographic attributes of people, we kind of end up with biased, subjectively biased statement. Another example we may hear a lot from news and uh, especially like headlines, sometimes they want to catch your attention, is John McCain exposed as an and principled politician versus John McCain described as an unprincipled politician. So in this case, the difference is the word exposed versus the word described. 
So the verb expose is like a effective verb. So which presuppose that the truth of the the complement there. Well, a non-biased sentence would use a verb such as describe, so that we do not presuppose the subjective opinion of the of the writer. So there is no like a bias from the writer or the author that we we have in our interpretation of the sentence. So framing bias is very subtle, as you may observe, and even for people, I think we may not be able to recognize them. Or the difference between them at the first glance. So that's why we think that we should do、uh, computational models. Maybe models can do a better job than us. Oh, and where do you get this data from? Oh yeah, so Wikipedia. So Wiki is a very interesting ecosystem, as I、uh, emphasize a lot through our throughout our conversation. So on Wikipedia, there is this very interesting policy called neutral point of view. Because we want to make a Wikipedia article like a encyclopedia, neutral and factual, so that a lot of people can refer to it, right? So this neutral point of view policy basically says that all content on Wikipedia must be written in a neutral point of view. That is, it must represents like a fairly proportionally without editorial bias. So there are a set of like sub principles defined, like how to avoid stating opinions as facts or how to not use judgmental language. So there are detailed like breakdowns. So we look at how editors edit the articles. So basically, when let's say a very experienced editor come to Wikipedia and then they observe that some other editors just insert a bias statement. So they will make the change and then click the save button to save this edit. So in that case, you will have two versions before and after. And then another good thing that editors, a very good like a practice, is that editors submit a comment. Um, in their comment, they will say that I made this change because it violates the neutral point of view, or I make this edit to remove point of view. So that's where we get our、uh, ground truth labels. So basically, we use the regular expressions to parse the comment that editors、uh, wrote, and then use that to retrieve the before and the after. In this case, we will be able to get a parallel corpus here. So the the before is a bias statement, and then the after is a relatively neutral version of that. So we look at the English Wikipedia, and then、uh, the corpus will end up with has like a a. Eighteen thousand like、uh, parallel sentences, so it's a pretty large corpus. Do Wikipedia editors tend to agree with each other about whether whether or not something is neutral? Because subjective as seems like well, it's subjective, right?、Uh, yes, yes, it, it is subjective. So as I mentioned, so there there is a policy page about how to interpret neutral point of view policy. So there are like a multiple breakdown of. What cases it is like a、uh, subjective bias, and in what cases it is not. So and、uh, also another like an、uh, interesting thing we found that、uh, like a、uh, like behind the data set construction process is so because we we look at the tenure or the experience level of different editors and then to see because this is like a very subtle and sometimes complicated to recognize that. So、uh, we look at、uh, who is doing this type of neutral point of view edits. And it turns out to be like people with a lot of expertise. So this kind of suggests that we could like trust the the comments they put there because they stay in the community longer. They have a lot of experience dealing with this, and then they well understand the policy. So um, that's that's one kind of story behind the thing. The the other is that if this is if this editor turns out not to be correct. Then there will also be discussions、uh, behind each Wikipedia page where people talk about like, hey, why make this edit, and then why it is for neutral point of view. So it's a volunteer-based community, and it's so interesting and fantastic that、uh, they have a well like documented policy for neutral point of view. Yeah, it does sound like、uh, Wikipedia is indeed an exciting source for these kinds of data. 
uh, yeah, I've not, I've not really thought much about what actually happens behind the scenes. We usually only mostly process process Wikipedia pages uh, or the, the final outputs, but uh, it's great to know about this process uh, that's happening behind the scenes. Okay, so coming back to your actual task of uh, debiasing or removing subjective uh, biases syntax, what exactly is the problem description here? You are given a, a sentence with subjective bias in it, and what do you do with it? So the task here is actually a form of text generation. So as the data set itself, so we have the before and after. So the input here is like biased statement. And then the output here is neutralized text. Then the modeling task that we have is to generate this neutralized text, uh, giving these biased sentences doing these parallel coppers we have collected. So that's the problem statement. In terms of the actual uh, method that we used, uh, we use the sequence-to-sequence encoder-decoder framework as a base architecture. And we also designed a set of task-specific components to uh, further improve the model. So for example, like in the paper, we actually talk about the two types of algorithms. The first one is what we call a modular network. So it tries to simulate how human read a buyer statement. So inspired by that, we uh, first use a BERT-based classifier to identify which word in this sentence might be biased or, or not, given the context. And then we can join this like prediction of over different tokens together with the encoder representation to, to generate the new sentence. So that's what we call the modular algorithm. So you can see that in this process, we will be able to visualize which word might be biased. So this is a very controllable model. So the, the other type of model we did is just like an end-to-end framework. So we didn't, so interestingly, like we didn't find which model is better. So they actually perform equally better. The, the nuances there is that we found that this type of end-to-end models, like without looking at which word might be biased or not, they can generate a more fluent language. And then also they can preserve the meaning of the sentence well. But our type of modular network, they can reduce the bias to the maximum degree compared to the end-to-end fashion. So another interesting model trick that we, we did here is that if you think about the neutralization process, the new sentence needs to have similar semantic content and meaning as the original one, but are less subjective and then more neutral. So to kind of capture these nuances, we, we introduced a modified loss function here to uh, reward the generation or introduction of new words, since in most cases, only a few words are changed in the generated text while the rest of them are the same. So models tend to just like output the exact same output. So the modified loss function we introduced is very helpful to do that. Quick, quick clarifying question here. Is it is it part of the task to detect whether there is bias? Or are you always assuming that you get a subjectively biased statement as input? Yes. So because the way how we, how we construct the coppers, because we need to see like, the editor changed the buyer statement into neutral. So that assumes that the given text is, is biased already. So that's one of the assumptions for this specific work. So you couldn't then just like take this and run it on all of all of the news articles from some particular website that you your, your favorite news outlet, because some of the statements might be unbiased and then it wouldn't behave as you expect? That's a great question. So that's also our ongoing work. So in this specific work, like as an initial effort, we make the bias to neutral sentence neutralization. So some of the ongoing work, we are trying to see, like giving any random statement from a Wikipedia article, can we identify whether it is biased or not? Because it's, it's like a pre-processing for our current systems. And we, we found that the initial accuracy we get just a for whether a statement is biased or not is actually around the 70 percentage. So yeah, I think uh, in the end, uh, we would expect a systems to do everything in one universal system. That is detecting whether a statement is biased or not. And then if yes, 
use this type of neutralization uh, framework to neutralize it. And you can also imagine that people could build like just like one single system that does this in a joint fashion. So that's also uh, our ongoing work at the moment. Great, thanks. So uh, I wanted to ask about evaluation, actually both for identifying subjective bias and also for uh, debiasing bias statements. It seems like, uh, especially for deep, the debiasing part, the, the, the your AAA paper, it's hard to have ground truths here, right? Uh, there isn't one single way of debiasing uh, a sentence. So how exactly do you evaluate the model? Yeah. So first, uh, I think uh, we can do it in an uh, automatic way. There are also human evaluation I will share in a few minutes. So in terms of the automatic mirrors, since this is treated as a standard generation task, right? And then we have the ground truth from editors about uh, how to make the change. So we can just measure the, the distance or the errors that our model did compared to this ground truth. So from this perspective, we use the widely used uh, blue. And then we also have the accuracy mirror here. That is whether it uh, corrects the sentence like accurately as the ground truth. So that's just like a zero or one for a sentence. So that's the accuracy mirror. So those two are the like automatic mirrors. And then we rely on human like expert annotation in the data set creation process. In another case, we also introduced like a three human evaluation metrics here. Uh, the first one is whether the meaning of the two sentences are preserved because we, we want it to be neutral, but we do not want to change the meaning there. And then we also measure the fluency of the generation. And the most important measure here is whether a given sentence is less biased or more biased. So we design a careful task on Amazon Mechanic because as we all know that the, the subjective bias here is subtle and then people may not recognize that. In that case, annotators may not be qualified to work on our annotation. So to do that, we design a qualification training test. So basically we provided the background of what is neutral point of view policy on Wikipedia and we give examples. We also provide, let's say, five like test questions. So we know whether a sentence is biased or not and which word. And then we ask uh, annotators to pick them out. So only people who did very well in the training can uh, work on the actual evaluation part. So that's how we guarantee that we could get a fair assessment of the model performance. So you said in there that you want the meaning of the sentence before and after to be the same, except this seems inherently in conflict with removing the subjective bias, which is part like you're, you're, you want to take the sentence but remove a piece of the meaning. And so this seems hard to define in terms of an evaluation metric, because at one point you want some of the meaning to be the same, but you want a particular aspect of the meaning to be different. Like that's the whole point of the model. So. Like, how do you wrap your head around what is meaning and like what, what you're supposed to change here? Great question. So I think uh, what is meaning? That in itself is a very interesting question. So we did think about this. And uh, whenever we talk about uh, like the neutralization and then the meaning, they seem to be somehow confined, right? So from our perspective, like uh, the bias here, the subjective bias, the neutral point of view is more like a style. Maybe this is not a very accurate word, but like it's more like a style. When we ask people to check whether it uh, preserves the meaning, we try to be very specific. Like, for example, like it did not uh, uh, change some of the key information. Information is also an interesting word here. It did not change some of the key entities or relations or like facts there. So that's what we mean by uh, meaning preserving. So the bias on like the neutral point of view is something we view more like a, a style. So that's the like a careful um, steps we did in the actual evaluation process. I think uh, this is a great question in general. So especially these days when we work on very stylistic text generation. So we use fluency, we use meaning preserving, we may use some other style related matters. So this is a generic issue that I think we face right now with human evaluation part. 
And I think uh, future work could do more at uh, providing, let's say, maybe a universal template for, for researchers to better evaluate their systems. Right. Yeah, I guess we have different words in a language because they mean at least slightly different things. And so it's interesting to think about like, like there are pragmatics involved that, that are indeed changed when you change these things. And, it, and linguist, linguistics, I guess, has a little bit of this, probably more than I'm aware of. And But I, I don't think we talk about this as much as we probably should in NLP. Like we throw around these like meaning preserving words without really thinking about actually what what does that mean? Yeah. Interesting. Thanks. Yeah, we have an ongoing collaboration with University of Virginia. Uh, on like a careful understanding of the human annotation process. So we, we hope that that work could provide some insights into this process. So think about that for the same task. If you use different framing in your evaluation text snippets, will that give you the same or different uh, evaluation results? So stay tuned for the results. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you talked about how you model this problem and how you evaluate the model's performance. Uh, in general, what were the takeaways from uh, modeling this uh, this task and what aspects of the task were difficult to model and how would you improve these models? So one interesting aspect we found from this process is that uh, maybe this is true, like NLP models and our models tend to do very well in generating fluent attacks. So the, the texts that we produce are grammatically correct. And then when we look at the error analysis, we found that uh, maybe it's due to the subtle of, or the complexity of language understanding required for bias neutralization. We, we found more errors when it comes to the actual picking the biased word or like uh, suggesting the appropriate word to replace that. So a closer look at that is that we, we found uh, when the test data points involve replacing some effective or assertive verbs, that's more of an issue. And another kind of shortcut that our models tend to make is it has a tendency to simply remove words instead of finding a good replacement because that's easier, especially for uh, other verbs or adjectives. So like one simple fix is just to remove that. And then the model seems doing that uh, a lot of the times. And uh, I think uh, this problem itself is, is very hard. And then in this initial effort, we look at the single word change. So for bias neutralization. So we can think about like uh, the, the multi-word change or in a multilingual setting or even like a cross-sentence bias. Like will be very cool for uh, future work to model. Another aspect that I think we haven't taken into account, but we should, is to incorporate the aspect of fact-checking. Because if we want to know whether a presupposition is correct, is true, or it is not, we, we need to model that apart. And that requires us for a more sophisticated systems designed for this work. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, we do not have a lot of time left but I really wanted to go over your work on modeling persuasiveness as well, because I think it's pretty exciting. Can you give us a brief overview of that, uh, that work from your NACL 2019 paper? Sure, yeah. So that's more like a, a opposite a part of this bias work. So if you think about a bias as removing some unwanted framing, this persuasion work is like, okay, for some good face purpose, can we... Can we help people write a more persuasive request? And can we quantify the degree of persuasiveness there? I think uh, in our work, we care more about uh, what specific persuasion strategies are used in a message. So persuasion is a widely studied concept in psychology. And then, so as I think Daniel Kahneman said in his Nobel Prize winning book, so when people are looking at requests or information, there are two systems going on in our mind. The first uh, system one is fast and emotional. So we rely on very superficial cues in the context to make decisions. For example, if people emphasize like, oh, only a few left, then you think that, oh, this must be very good because people are like getting it all the time. And then system two, in contrast, is slower and then more deliberative, more logic. So 
people will carefully evaluate the request and then ask questions like, oh, are those facts correct? Or are those concurrence warranted? So our work can be inspired by this and also the, the dual information processing theory in psychology. Basically, it's another version of the same uh, framework breakdown here. So we kind of borrow this new information processing theory from psychology and then translate them into something that we can or we encounter in language. So for example, some interesting categories are scarcity. So if I talk about like, please take action. This loan is going to expire in 15 minutes or that's scarcity, right? So it kind of creates this urgency and then tell you that uh, you will value this at more when it becomes rare or urgent. Another interesting thing is identity here, identity. So if I want to convince you, I will emphasize the commonalities between the speaker and the audience. So, oh, we are all located in Seattle. And then, um, so we can talk about some things in Seattle versus in Atlanta. Or there are like emotional aspects you can, you can emphasize in your language. So there are many like a, uh, theoretical inspired uh, precision strategies that we introduce in this work. So the goal of this work is to see how could we build computational models to uh, identify different precision strategies that the people use at a sentence level. You mentioned some theory from cognitive sciences and are there any, any additional theories from social sciences that you relied on as well? Things like uh, scarcity and identity. Do these actually come from some theory in social sciences? Yes, there is a framework called social influence. And then basically it introduced different uh, tactics that we use in language. So scarcity, concreteness, identity. There are also like uh, reciprocity. So you do me a favor this time and then I will return it to you in the future. So basically if I want to convince others, I could see that, uh, oh, I'm sure I will give it back to the community by doing blah, blah, blah. So that, that's all sorts of things that uh, the social science side has studied a lot. And then one thing that we did is to transform those very interesting tactics and then see how that get reflected in language. And what was your data source for this uh, task? Yeah, so uh, we, we collaborated with uh, Kiva.org, which is the uh, largest peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending platform in the United States. So it's a environment where borrowers, usually from developing countries, and uh, they, they post their uh, request online. And then there will be community advocators who will further advocate their request in the discussion board to get more people attention towards those loans. So we actually analyze those advocacy requests. So for each advocacy request, we know how many people uh, this message reach out to. And then among them, how many people take actions to, to lend. So this will give us some kind of overall global level of persuasiveness. So we have like around 42,000 such requests. And then uh, for 500 of them, we work with annotators on Amazon Account Turk to annotate uh, each request and uh, the persuasion strategies people use at each sentence level. That is, for each specific sentence, what specific persuasion strategies it used. So that's the overview of the data set. So the indicator of persuasiveness in this task is uh, how many people um, essentially gave money or something? Yes, like. yes. So that's a very strong indicator because you could read the message and you think the message is cool. But like uh, what really matters is that you take actions to respond to the request. So that's the overall persuasiveness matter of, of our data, which I think it's a very uh, strong indicator. Another data set that we use for generalization here is, is also very interesting. So it's from Reddit called the Random Acts of PISA. So basically, the community members can write a request to ask for a free piece of PISA. And then the only thing they provide is like a text message saying something like, why I need a pizza, why you should give me pizza. And then community, other community members will read this request and determine whether they will give. And then there is a bot that monitors this process so that once the requester receives the pizza, there will be some indications. So we also use this data set to test the persuasion strategies that we used. 
And uh, did you find good ways of getting more pizza? <laughs> That's not ethical to use <laughs> computational <laughs> models to get some real world benefits, right? Okay, got it. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, we're short on time, but I am glad we went over the interesting details of uh, both these papers. And before we end this conversation, uh, I also wanted to ask about uh, some of the other exciting things that you're working on and uh, what uh, general direction you're headed in. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, as I like, uh, I, I, I truly believe this, that uh, we, we are in a very unique moment and a position to study social NLP. And uh, there are so much like data alternatives and the phenomena we can observe from web. So once that I personally excited about this direction is about like a first is to build some like algorithms for those what I call socially low resource attacks. As you can see, either for the buyers or for the persuasion, we always go through this process of there is a new social phenomenon and we are going to collect data. We are going to build a model and then we are going to interpret the, the, the findings, right? So it, it's sometimes in order to build good models or have reasonable accuracy, you need to have a pretty large corpus, especially those are very subtle, like a social phenomena. So one of the things that we are trying to do is that whether we could build methods to speed up this process and also to kind of computationally, scientifically model social phenomena. So we need a better like a semi-supervised or even unsupervised methods for this uh, socially low resource task. So right now, like uh, my group is working towards building those methods for learning with limited or small data for what I call socially low resource tasks. So one of our recent work at ACL uh, look at how to propose a new, like a semi-supervised tax classification framework. So uh, leveraging recent advances in augmentation and self-training. So basically, the main idea is to create a large amount of augmented training data points by interpolating text in the hidden space. So that's one direction we want to like push forward. So overall, I think a social NLP is, is emerging, and then there are a lot of like a great and a pioneer like researchers whose research laid the foundation for this field, such as Professor Dan Drafsky, uh, Lillian Lee, Noah Smith. Jacob Einstein, Dirk Hovey, and, and many others. So I'm a newcomer to this field, and uh, I'm really excited about uh, this, especially around uh, like building socially aware language technologies. In addition to the method, I think uh, some other exciting directions in our lab right now is to understand the social dynamics between human and AI. So think about uh, we use AI tools in our communication. What are some like uh, social dynamics there? And uh, can we promote civility uh, in language use and then try to remove those or study those ill-intentioned language use. And uh, more importantly, I think uh, Matt pointed out this issue in the beginning about the ethic part. So as we study more social aspects of NLP, how can we build uh, like a privacy preserving and uh, responsible NLP? So that's also some directions we have been thinking about. Okay, great. Thanks. Is, uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that uh, we didn't ask you about? This is great. And I think uh, we need more people to join us and do more fun and interesting social NLP research. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks a lot for this conversation. Dean. Thank you. <laughs>